Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. To begin, I acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen land here at Triple R. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation and uh, pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to First Nations people tuning in this afternoon. I acknowledge the stories that we tell you today and, and every day exist within the context of First Nations oral storytelling traditions, um, which have been shared and yarned about for many thousands of years on this land. It was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'm very excited to be airing an interview that I did earlier this week um, with writer, journalist, legal researcher, Lucia Osborne Crowley. Um, She joined me to speak about her new book called My Body Keeps Your Secrets. It is out through Alan and Unwin. And the book follows her story as a survivor of sexual assault and her discovery of the links between this trauma and kind of chronic illness. And she goes on to research these really shadowy intricacies of abuse and trauma and shame. And this book encompasses the stories and experiences of over 100 women, uh, trans and non-binary people in the aftermath of abuse and sexual assault. And yeah, she writes of, of vulnerability and acceptance and of what it means to reclaim ourselves in defiance of all of these quite horrific atrocities that are committed um, and, yeah, repeatedly told to kind of carry the weight of the shame. So as you may imagine, I just want to give a blanket content warning for this show. It does, you know, the interview does touch on themes of uh, sexual assault and abuse. So if you're not up for that today, that's totally okay. You might want to turn this one down for the next 40 minutes or so. Um, But, yeah, a really wonderful chat from a really incredible thinker. You're listening to Triple R. The Glass House is the name of the show. My name is Beth AQ. Me Too allowed so many of the previously uninitiated to understand, to finally believe that those obvious violations truly damage us, that sexual assault and harassment are not victimless crimes, that each act of invasion and violence is criminal and dangerous. But here is what we have yet to metabolise. It is not just about the crime, but also about the cover-up. It is the years and years and years of hiding that come after the assault. Sometimes what hurts us the most is the aftermath, the everyday challenge of living in a body that has been damaged and disrespected and shamed in some way. That is an excerpt of Lucia Osborne Crowley's new book, My Body Keeps Your Secrets. This book shares the voices of women and non-binary people who have experienced sexual trauma and is woven together with a personal narrative. It's a book about the manifestations of secrecy, shame and silence. It's about the aftermath of an initial trauma. Lucia, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here and thank you for um, reading that excerpt so beautifully. Thank you. Lucia, 
you know, in many ways, it feels quite necessary to speak about your first book, um, I Choose Eleanor, I suppose, before we kind of dive into this book, as it seems like, you know, that was the, the precursor to this kind of wider research project that you've undertaken. Can you speak a little bit about that first book and perhaps how it led you to this one? Yeah, absolutely. So my first book is called I Choose Eleanor. Um, and I always say that it is the last first book I ever, ever, ever would have expected to write. Um, so I am a journalist I, and I started my career as a journalist in the covering gender-based violence, sexual violence and domestic violence. And um, I, although while I was covering all of these issues, I never acknowledged that I myself had been violently sexually assaulted as a teenager so when I was 15, I was on a night out in Sydney and I was I was raped by a stranger um, who was armed. And it was, you know, it was a very, very traumatic event, but I did not acknowledge it. I immediately knew somewhere deep in my brain, somewhere precognitive, that I couldn't tell anyone about it um, because I would be blamed somehow. So I went home and I let my injuries heal and I didn't tell anyone. Um, and I kept that secret for 10 years because I couldn't stand the way that people would judge me, if the, the way that I thought people would judge me if they knew. And in that time, I got very sick. I started having nightmares and flashbacks, and then I stopped sleeping. And then about six months after the assault, I, got, um, I started having very bad abdominal pains associated with kind of vomiting and pelvic bleeding and all sorts of things. And um, I was in and out of hospital for 10 years and I, and I couldn't understand what was happening to my body. I never connected it to the assault um, because I was trying not to think about the assault. Um, but then when I was about 25, um, I got very, very, very sick. I couldn't work. I couldn't function. I couldn't socialize. And I, just, and I realized um, that, you know, I, these thoughts kept kind of creeping in and I started having more intense nightmares about the assault and clearer nightmares about the assault. And I thought, you know, something, something's happening here and maybe it's time to tell someone about what happened to me because at this point I'll do anything to get better, including do the one thing I told myself I would never do, which is tell someone that I was assaulted. So I told my doctors and, they, and all at once they all told me that there is very clear evidence to connect, you know, that kind of physical trauma with the illness that I was experiencing. And so I then started to get all sorts of treatment for my, both for my illnesses and for the assault itself, for the trauma itself. And I learned so much about trauma that I didn't know. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm a journalist who covers traumatic subjects. You know, if I don't know about this, then who is going to know about this? Um, and I started writing it down. I was taking notes in my medical appointments. And then I decided that I wanted to publish it because I wanted people to know what I was learning about the long-term impacts of sexual violence and, and about what I was learning about how different my life might have been if I had come forward earlier, if I'd lived in a world where I felt like I could safely come forward earlier. So I published um, a piece in the ABC and the Lifted Brow um, about my assault and about its aftermath. And that um, was commissioned to be turned into my first book. So that was uh, a short book, and it was very much limited to my story um, about the assault, about the 10 years after the assault, and about me deciding to finally speak up about it. Mm. Um, but when I 
after I published that first piece in the ABC and the Lifted Brow, and then after I published the book, I received thousands of emails from people. Um, and so many of them started with the line, what happened to me wasn't as bad as what happened to you. Um, but I think it still affected me. And I realized that, you know, my story, that first book kind of had to only be about my story, but that my story is in some ways for the, for the broader conversation, not that useful because it is, it is very unusual in, in the, you know, in the spectrum of sexual violence, the idea of being attacked by a stranger in the night in a dark alley, which is literally what this was, um, statistically um, is very uncommon. You know, we know that most people who are sexually assaulted are victimised by people they know and trust, people who are supposed to protect them, and the, and it's much harder to see these, these um, events as traumatic because they happen within a relationship. Um, and it made me realise that I wanted to to write something that was more inclusive and that could look at these things that I've learned with a more inclusive lens um, that could bring all of these stories together rather than just focus on my story, which, you know, is quite unusual. Mm. So I then, this second book is basically taking the, the same kinds of concepts which are um, the, the long-term impacts of trauma on the body and the mind, um, but broadens them out um, and and tries to include all sorts of different stories. So I spoke to over 100 people about trauma and all of their stories were so different and they live in completely different parts of the world. Um, but the feelings they were left with were all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say exactly the same, I mean they were sometimes echoing each other's words, each other's phrasing, you know, and these are people who will never meet each other. Um so what this book is is trying to bring together the, all those interviews that I did over over years to try and give um, a, a more comprehensive picture of trauma and how it works and, and to really kind of show that trauma is not just a big formative event like mine was. It can be, it is a huge spectrum and it can be, things that we as a society consider quote-unquote not as bad. Mm. Um, And in fact, trauma, if your brain registers something as traumatic, that is frightening. If it enters a fight-or-flight response, then the effect on the body and the mind is the same, no matter what that event is. The brain doesn't actually care how quote-unquote serious or bad we consider, that our society considers what has happened. The brain responds to it in the same way. So that's what I wanted to do with this book is, is kind of, yeah, build a more comprehensive picture and bring more people into the conversation so it didn't feel like it had to be this really extreme event in order for trauma to be something that um, we should understand as part of our stories. Mm. I mean, you open the book with this very apt metaphor of the fly in the bottle, which is kind Mm. of what you're speaking about now. Can you speak a little bit about that metaphor and what you mean by it? Yeah, so... um, I love this metaphor and you're the first person who's asked me about it. So thank you. <laughs> um, basically the, the fly in the bottle comes from uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is a philosopher. And um, the idea is that if a fly is trapped in a glass bottle, um, it will see the world th- through the transparent glass. Um, but because of its size and because the bottle is um, consuming it, 
it can't actually see the structure of the bottle itself. So it sees through the glass. There's nothing obstructing its view necessarily. So it thinks it's seeing the world as it actually is. Mm. But in fact, um, it's trapped in a bottle. Um, but the only way, you, you can't say to the fly, you are trapped in a bottle because the fly can't see the bottle for itself. Um, and so all that you can do for the fly is to help it fly closer and closer to the, to the top, to the mouth of the bottle and fly out because it's only from the outside that you can see the structure um, that was, that was it trapping you basically. Mm-hmm. So this is very often used as um, a metaphor for abuse, both sexual abu- abuse and domestic violence. It's also used as a metaphor for things like cults um, and institutional abuse. Mm-hmm. So basically what it means is that if, if you can see that someone is in an abusive relationship, for example, um, it is not very useful to say to that person, you're in an abusive relationship because you can't see the bottle when you're inside it. You can only see the bottle once you've flown outside of it. Um, and the same is true with trauma. So, you know, if I'm the fly in this situation, for 10 years I thought that all my symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder were just part of my personality. You know, I thought I was constitutionally afraid. I thought I was weak. I thought I was kind of not very good at handling the world. Um, and so I was seeing the world as terrifying. Um, but it, it was refracted through this, this bottle that I couldn't see, which is that I was, I was trapped inside um, a, a cycle of trauma that, that I didn't know I was in. And now that I can see it, now that I'm out of the bottle and I can see the bottle, I can understand which parts of my life are symptoms um, and which parts of my life are connected to trauma and which parts aren't. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's It was the most satisfying metaphor to read because it is so accurate um, and it's mm-hmm. never been explained to me in that way before and it's just kind of looking at it at a different angle, which I think the best mm-hmm. writing does. So thank you for kind of giving oh, me <laughs> that metaphor. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to speak about your story for a little bit. It is woven throughout the book. You know, growing up, you had a very specific relationship with your body as a former elite gymnast. You know, your body was very literally strong. You know, you had a daily training schedule. Can you describe how that bodily practice informed your relationship with your body and and perhaps how that went on to inform this writing? Yeah. So as you said, I was, I was a very serious, uh, competitive gymnast from, uh, you know, I started when I was three or four. Um, and but, so by the time I was a teenager, gymnastics was my entire life. So I was training sometimes twice a day, sometimes before school and after school on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, everything I did and thought and ate was about gymnastics. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, I saw my body as very functional. I saw it as incredibly powerful because, you know, it was. Um, and I, I really appreciated it because um, it, was the, it was the thing that made all my dreams come true, you know. Um, and so I, it was a very strange experience when I was assaulted because um, Basically, when one of the one of the immediate impacts of trauma is that you lose a sense of what neuroscientists call proprioception, which is basically an understanding of how how your body moves in the world. It's basically a kind of spatial understanding. Um, so how far how far away 
things are from you. Um, and so when you lose proprioception, you become very clumsy. Um, and it's the, it's the brain kind of um, dissociating a bit from the, it, its kind of spatial existence in the world. And that's what happened to me without me realizing it. So as soon as I was assaulted, um, I kind of I stopped being able to do the things I could do in my sleep before. You know, I started quite literally losing my balance. Um, I was falling all the time. I was injuring myself all the time. And I had no idea what had happened. You know, I had no idea what had changed because I was trying so hard not to think about that night. Um, and at first there were a few thoughts where I was, you know, because the assault left me with quite serious injuries. So there was a time when I was thinking, you know, I am injured, so maybe I'm just not at my peak. But then it kind of kept happening. And um, then eventually, a few months after the assault, I was in a tryout for my second world championships. And um, I had a, a big catastrophic injury um, during that competition, which came from, you know, the fact that I just couldn't um, – I was unbalanced. I did a huge trick and I, and I took off in the wrong way and I, and I injured myself and that ended my gymnastics career. So, you know, I haven't, I haven't been back to a gym since, since that day. Mm. Um, and so it's really, you know, my, my relationship to my body really changed almost overnight. Um, and it was that night that the assault happened, you know, because it took away from me this thing that allowed me to see my body in really positive terms which most teenage girls don't have you know I was I was 15 at this time and by that time most teenage girls do not have access to that kind of really positive powerful relationship with their body um and then all of a sudden it was gone um and and then also I started getting sick immediately after that so my body went from being incredibly functional to incredibly dysfunctional very very quickly and you know when I when I started thinking about writing this, this first essay that became the first book, um, you know, I never intended really for gymnastics to be a part of it because by that time it felt so far away from me. You know, I hadn't, I tried not to think about it because I missed it so much. Um, but when I sat down to write it, it kept coming up, you know, it kept, it kept being this kind of this thing that I would use in my writing to explain um, what it, feels like to lose that to lose your sense of your body in the world and the only reference point I had for my body in the world before the assault was as an athlete so um it ended up kind of being the backbone of that first book which was never what I intended but um sometimes this happens when you sit down to write something and the writing just keeps telling you that it's not going to work without a certain element mm. um and gymnastics was that and um it's really interesting because it's caused me to kind of go back and think a lot about about what being an athlete meant to me as a teenager and what it meant to lose that mm -hmm. as a teenager on the same in the same kind of weeks and months that I was assaulted. Mm. I think this book is so fascinating for so many reasons, but I think grounding it in your personal experience is is a really amazing kind of technique to to draw the book together. But I'm also interested, I suppose, in the kind of personal cost of that. You know, as you said, this book weaves together stories of women and non-binary people who've experienced things similar or a bit dissimilar to you. You know, you've, you said you interviewed over 100 people. I'm interested yeah. when you are still 
somewhat within the aftermath of, of kind of uncovering your own recovery, how do you kind of keep yourself safe when, you know, you are learning about some of the most horrific moments of other people's lives? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, and I, you know, I, really, I did find this very, very hard um, because, as you say, you know, I still am in the throes of this. And I really like saying that because sometimes, you know, there's this pressure once you've written a book about something to act like you're past it, you know, or act mm-hmm. like you're fully recovered. And that's definitely not where I'm at. And so there were parts of this that did have quite a high personal cost, I think. Um, but that was, I think that was more about more the part where I was writing about myself than necessarily when I was hearing, um, from other people because, and the reason for that is because, you know, so much of this book is about shame and how shame kind of compounds the effects of trauma when we can't speak about things. And I honestly, the interviews I did with these people went, went on for months and months and months. And every time I interviewed someone, even though we were talking about terrible, terrible things, um, we had this connection and we had this shared language and and we were able to kind of put into words these things that had happened to us. And that felt like a really safe community to me. Mm. And, you know, I, I do think there was a world in which that might have been quite damaging, but partly I think due to the tenacity of the people I was interviewing. But it, it ended up being the opposite of that. You know, it was really helpful for me to have this structure in my life where I'd be talking to people all the time about these concepts and about these and about trauma because, you know, it made me, it, it validated my experience, you know, it made me understand that what I was feeling was real and legitimate because all these other people were feeling it too. And, you know, the thing about trauma is that, especially when it comes to things like gender-based violence, which we're taught not to talk about, we experience, like, we, we think that we're feeling these things alone and we think that we're feeling fear and worthlessness and all of these things by ourselves, but in fact we're all feeling the same things at the same time. Um, and those interviews kind of showed me that in a way that I, I think I intellectually understood but I didn't emotionally understand um, until I was having these conversations every day. And I've heard from them um, that they felt the same way because I was so worried about the impact this would have on them. You know, a lot of these stories, were they were telling me for the first time. I was the first person to ever hear these things. Mm. Um, and I was really worried on, at, about the impact that would have on them. Um, but they kind of always tell me that they, have, they felt the same thing, that, you know, speaking to me sometimes every day for a year um, made helped them understand that, that their experiences were legitimate and that the things that they were feeling that they were not alone in those feelings. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the title of your book alludes to this kind of central thread that you're talking about, which is that of secrecy and, you know, the effects on the body and the mind when people are expected to, are told to, whether overtly or, you know, subtly, or even sometimes encouraged to kind of conceal traumatic experiences in order to maintain systems of abuse. Can Mm -hmm. you, I suppose, tell me a little bit about how pervasive that secrecy was in, you know, in these conversations that you've had with these people and and through your research on sexual assault and abuse? Yeah. So, you know, the thing, it's, it, it just kept striking me that, I, my life would be so different if I hadn't felt ashamed of what had happened to me. And, you know, the metaphor I used in the first book is that, you know, if I had if I had, had a car accident that night, 
you know, I would have gone to a doctor. You know, if I had had a car accident and come out with the injuries that I did come out with that night, I would have been hospitalised for days, you know, um, and I would have got treatment and I would have been able to talk to people about what happened and people would have said to me, you know, are you afraid? Are you okay? All of that kind of thing. And the reason I didn't have access to that help was not because the crime I was exposed to was less serious, but because it's one that we as a society don't like to acknowledge. And the power of that desperate need not to acknowledge just how bad gender-based violence is, is formidable. You know, what it means is that we don't let anyone talk about it because we don't want to look at it squarely. We don't want to acknowledge that, that it happens so often in our society. So we just don't. And the way to not acknowledge that is to convince the victims that it is their fault. That's the first step. And then the second step is that they shouldn't tell anyone about it because they will be judged and they will be blamed and they will be shamed for it. Mm. And so, you know, shame and trauma are a really uh, powerful combination uh, because the worst effects of trauma are the ones that happen over time. And the time is given to trauma when we can't speak about it. So the more I spoke to doctors and experts, the more I realized that we as a society are actually very good at treating trauma. Psychiatrists have, you know, decades worth of, of research about how this works. And if you are a car accident victim, for example, you will get trauma treatment immediately that night and uh, you won't go on to have chronic symptoms of PTSD. Mm. And so, you know, the, di the difference, the thing that makes this so formative for us and the thing that makes it really affect our lives is the fact that we're not able to talk about it and therefore not able to get treatment for our trauma. Mm. And so it just, it occurred to me for the second book that that was really important because shame is the thing that separates some traumatic experiences from others. And the, the traumatic experiences that I was interested in were, were the ones that we were ashamed for because those are the ones that have long-term impacts on the body and the mind. Mm. And, you know, it just, it just every time I spoke to one of these people, shame was one of the primary emotions that they felt and that's what kept them quiet and that's what kept them from doctors and therapists and even from telling their friends. So I think that's a kind of, that's a big thing that I want to try and fight back against. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Lucia Osborne Crowley all about her new book, My Body Keeps Your Secrets. Lucia, I think you know, it just rings true. Everything you're saying, shame manifests and festers when it's not addressed. Obviously, there are so many ways that we're taught not to address um, sexual assault and trauma. You know, you write that shame lives and breathes in silence, which I think is exactly what you're talking about now. You know, you kind of go on to write about um, how shame can manifest in different people. You know, you write about this relationship between shame and perfectionism, which I found incredibly yeah. interesting. Can you speak a little bit about that relationship? Yeah. So this is another thing that I found in my research that makes me so angry <laughs> is the thing about shame is that um, because we don't, again, because we don't like acknowledging shame very much, we also attach stigma to the coping mechanisms that we naturally most often use to deal with shame. So shame is a very, very, very difficult emotion to feel 
it's almost unbearable. So m most human brains will attempt to numb that feeling. And that's not, you know, a failure. That is just absolutely what we all do. Um, and the numbing can come in lots of different forms. Basically, it's anything that allows us to not feel the strong sense of shame that we're feeling. So for a lot of people, that is things like alcohol addiction, drug addiction, eating disorders is a huge one because it's about controlling shame. I mean, all of these behaviours are about trying to exercise control in our lives. Um, and then another one that I realised only when I was talking to a trauma and shame specialist is, as you said, perfectionism, um, which I always you know, thought, again, was just part of my personality. I'm kind of a type A overachiever. I will never let myself stop trying to do the next thing so that people will be impressed with me, you know. And I always thought that was just who I was, but it's actually a way of getting away from shame. It's a way of saying to yourself, something inside me feels bad and unworthy. I feel like I have done something wrong and I need to prove otherwise. You know, I need to show the world that I'm good enough. Um, and so what, what one of these experts says is that these, these mechanisms for numbing shame can be as divergent as the overachieving perfectionist or the addict in the alley. And, and both of those coping mechanisms are, are trying to do the same thing, which is outrun shame. And with the exception of perfectionism, a lot of these uh, behaviours, eating disorders, substance abuse, are again re-stigmatized. So we are shamed for those behaviors. So it's it's like a shame double whammy, mm -hmm. you know. You're feeling shame based on something that's happened to you that wasn't your fault. And then the way you cope with that shame is something that you're also made to feel ashamed of. So so many of the people I spoke to um, developed eating disorders in the aftermath of sexual or domestic abuse. And then when they try and get help from their, for their eating disorders, they were all dismissed by doctors and parents and teachers and therapists because disordered eating is, is seen as shameful. Um, so it's really once I realised that these behaviours were linked to shame, it started <laughs> occurring to me how unfair it is that we are also shamed for those. And then, you know, perfectionism is the interesting one because that's that's the one that we're not shamed for, where society actually rewards that in a lot of ways. Mm. Um so we don't get the double whammy of shame, but it's also more hidden from us that it's a shame coping mechanism. And it certainly was hidden from me. You know, I never realized that that's what I was doing mm. when I was just trying to, do, you know, do more stuff all the time and not sleeping properly and that I was, that I was trying to get out from under this shame feeling. Mm. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting, these links between unaddressed shame and kind of chronic pain and illness and how, you know, when you when you think about it, of course, if you unaddressed emotional pain, it becomes physical pain. It makes so much sense. And I think yeah. these parallels that you draw in your book uh, is kind of those aha moments where, you know, yeah. I think there was a stat in your book about the high rate of chronic illness in women and non-binary people because perhaps these are the people that experience um, shame after violence and perhaps, yes. uh, you know, gendered violence, as you said, one woman a week in this country, they're pretty horrifying statistics. Can you kind yeah. of unpack that relationship between chronic shame and chronic pain? Yeah, this was a huge aha moment for me. And, it, you know, it makes so much sense when you think about it. And there are two elements to this. One is deeply physiological. So if you live in a body 
that is subject to violence. And that is, you know, if you live in a body of any of the oppressed genders, um, people who walk around the world and, and know all the time that they are unsafe and that at any moment they could be subject to violence, that causes a, a kind of chronic trauma response. And the trauma response is, you know, when your body goes into fight, fight or freeze. And if you've been subject, if you live in a body that's been subjected to violence or has that constant threat of violence, so that means, for example, growing up in a household where if you have a father who was never violent but was always threatening to be violent, for example, that is still a very, very traumatic childhood. So that's just an example of, you know, the various ways in which this uh, can kind of manifest. Mm. But if you live like that, then your brain will have this chronic fight or flight response. And what the body does when you're in fight or flight is a couple of things. It raises your blood pressure, it raises your heart rate. But really importantly, it, it shuts down all of, all of the organs that it doesn't consider necessary to um, use to run away. So it shuts down the liver, the kidney, the bowel, importantly, um, everything except the heart to pump body to the major muscles. So what happens when those big important organs are shutting down and starting up again, sometimes 10 times a day, you know, there are so many triggers in the world for people who have experienced violence. And the more that happens, the more those systems start to become worn down and they start to break down. So the bowel is a really good example of this. A lot of people who have experienced violence end up with bowel problems, whether that be diagnosed as IBS, whether that be Crohn's disease, which I have, or uh, for some people, bowel cancer. And that is because the bowel is stopping and starting all the time. And that is a really, really, um, that's a really big problem for the organ. But also this stopping and starting process, it breaks down the immune system and it breaks down the nervous system. So then a lot of people develop diseases of the immune system like multiple sclerosis um, and, you know, there's a whole, and, and lupus. So, you know, on that level, it makes so much sense that if the body is living in a physiological state of fear, that eventually that will turn into much more serious physical problems hmm. and then the other factor is um the again the behaviors that we use to deal with fear so uh, and sometimes not even consciously deal with it but so if you're living in fear all the time you're much less likely statistically to have good sleep you're more likely to have sleep that's interrupted by nightmares you're more likely to develop insomnia that is a really solid predictor of ill physical health hmm. you know if you have years and years where you're not getting any solid sleep, you will eventually get sick. And then there are the things that, you know, so I, there are a lot of behaviors that I use when I, when I was kind of earlier on in my journey, like drinking too much and things like this, which are also bad for the immune system. And importantly, when I say that, you know, I'm not saying that people in this situation make their health worse by engaging in these behaviors. These behaviors are really, really normal. Thing, normal outlets when we feel afraid and when we feel traumatized you know it would be more unusual for us not to engage in something like that but over time those things damage our health so there's kind of so many factors that and when you put them all together it makes sense that 80 percent of people with chronic illnesses are women or people of marginalized genders i mean that is an alarming statistic sense that there's something societal there that that's not just a biological thing 
I mean, absolutely, and it makes so much sense. I, I think something that you've done in a really interesting way in this book is starting from perhaps a discrete trauma and then kind of zooming out, you know, years and years, perhaps even a decade after the initial tra- trauma is how the book is structured. I'm interested, and I think a lot about this in my own work, how complicated healing is, that it isn't linear, particularly if you're dealing with complex PTSD, PTSD, you know, healing is complicated, it can look different for different people. What do you feel like you've learned about how long healing can take when people are dealing with these really complex traumas? I mean, this is another thing that I really struggled with because I've always liked things that are neat and linear um, and have a kind of end point. But trauma and recovery is very much not like that. As you said, it's very nonlinear, just kind of by its nature. You have to keep coming back to the same things again and again and again because that's how you kind of form that's, – that's how you rewire the brain. That's how you kind of get the brain out of this, this state of chronic fear. And that means that there is no point – you know, there is no clear thing where you can say, oh, in three years of therapy, you'll be recovered. It just kind of, it happens in fits and starts and sometimes, and I think this is really important for people to understand, there will be moments where you feel like you're travelling backwards, but I think, but that's part of the process um, and it and it does kind of, you know, you're always kind of improving but sometimes that will be dipping down a bit and then making more improvements and I think sometimes it's, you know, it takes it takes a really, really long time but as long as you're in the process of recovering, you can still live a really, really fulfilled life. You know, that there's no, you don't have to be at this end point in order to start living. All you need to be doing is to be in that process. And sometimes that process takes a lifetime, you know. But the more you do it, the more you learn and the more joy you can get out of life mm-hmm. because you, you'll feel safer and all those things. So I think, you know, it's important for people to know that it is not linear, especially because we live in a world where, bad things will happen again Hmm. you know that's a really hard thing about it is that until we kind of end the um endemic of gender-based violence there will be the possible possibility that we will be re-traumatized while we're recovering Hmm. and that's really difficult um but it does happen and and you know the process of recovery can still continue absolutely and i think it's amazing to have more and more narratives that uh championing this idea that it isn't linear, that it's complicated, two steps back, one step forward. Um, But, you know, and it is different for everybody. Um, Lucia, something I did want to ask you about is, you know, from the outset, just looking at the cover of your book, it obviously exists in relation to um, Bessa van der Kolt's My Body Keeps the Score. It's a book I've never fully been able to get through. It's very dense. um, But, you know, the whole time I read it, I just kept thinking about how, I suppose, the examination of things like PTSD, you know, it kind of unpacks a lot about, you know, war heroes and people that have gone through PTSD from, I suppose, a very specific experience, but maybe not yep. necessarily victim survivors of sexual assault or abuse and maybe not necessarily looking at women's experiences. Tell me about your experience of reading that book and perhaps how you feel like this body of work has perhaps expanded on some of those ideas. Yeah, well, that, I mean, what you said is is exactly what I was trying to do is is to try and kind of take that theory and apply it to a realm of the world that I don't think it has been applied to yet. And that is because, you know, Bessel van der Poel's book, as you said, really does focus on um, war in particular and and masculine trauma in general. Um, 
and I think that's a, you know, generally that's a really big problem with the way we talk about trauma is certainly my understanding of trauma before I started on this, these two projects was that it was about people coming home from war. And that was kind of the beginning and the end of what trauma means. And certainly I think that is in some ways reinforced by um, Van der Kolk's book. But so for me, it wasn't that I saw my experiences reflected in that book. What happened was I was I was seeing a, uh, a number of therapists and a number of doctors about like this when I first disclosed my assault, and they started saying to me, you know, we know that it is very very possible that this physical trauma is what caused your illness and is what continues to cause your abdominal pain, and if we address that original trauma, we promise that we can um, help with your pain. And I just didn't believe them, you know. I just didn't have Firstly, because I didn't want to believe them and I didn't have a framework to understand that these things can kind of live on in the body. Um, and one of them gave me that book. And for me, because my, my brain likes words, the title, The Body Keeps the Score, as soon as she said the title of the book, it, it made sense to me. Hmm. Like there was something in that phrase, which even itself is a very masculine phrase. You know, the score is is a is a sports meta- metaphor, um, which is why I wanted my title to be, you know, different, play on that, but be different and, and non-masculine. But it, there was something about that phrasing that that made it click for me. And then I read the book cover to cover as soon as I got home from therapy that day, and it was just the first time my brain became open to the idea that this assault could have stayed with me in some way. Mm. It was the first time I understood that my idea that I could cognitively erase what had happened just by being determined to forget about it might not be enough. And because that book is intellectually rigorous, as you say, it's very dense, you know, it's not an easy read. It was the first time I kind of believed that there was science to it, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm. You know, that there was this very accomplished psychiatrist who's saying, I know this to be true and here's the evidence. And so even though it didn't apply to me, it was the first time I kind of believed it and I think everything changed after that. So I wanted to recreate that that aha moment, you know, the, the moment I had with him of being like, okay, maybe this is a possibility for my life. You know, maybe the body does keep the score. Mm. Um, I wanted to kind of recreate that but look at – a wider range of experiences than, than he was looking at so that more people could maybe look at that science and say to themselves, you know, maybe this goes some way in explaining my story as well. Mm, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure your book will be that for many people. Just before I let you go, you know, I am really interested in, I suppose, this pr- proliferation of writing on bodies and specifically about, <clears throat> excuse me, traumatised bodies. You know, it very much feels like it's in the zeitgeist over the last couple yeah. of years. I- I'm interested, yeah. what do you feel like has allowed these conversations to float to the surface to be able to kind of do this research and to really have people wanting to read this kind of work? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, honestly, I was asking myself that question the other day. Um, And it really does seem like there was a moment at which something changed and people were had had more of a hunger for reading about bodies. And I don't know. I think it's probably a combination of things. I think um, the Me Too, the, the explosion of the current iteration of 
the Me Too movement had a big part in that because I think that was uh, the, the when all of a sudden, again, almost overnight, we were suddenly allowed to talk about sexual assault. It that opened the door to talking about bodies in a way that that I certainly felt I, I wasn't able to before. Like I remember that day and that week in 2017 when that happened. That was the first week I had conversations with my friends about sex. And it was through having conversations about non-consensual sex and, and things that that, that that Me Too moment kind of brought up for us. And so I think even though that was, that was a very specific political moment, I think it opened a door to a lot of people to, to start speaking more about bodies. And then we're now seeing literature kind of come of age, you know, in the wake of that moment, I think. And then, yeah, I think just there's been a kind of domino effect of feeling more comfortable speaking about what it's like to live in a certain body mm. since then. Absolutely. And I'm very glad it's here and very glad to read these kind of stories. Lucia, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, thank you for your brilliant questions. That was so thoughtful and such a lovely conversation. Lucia Osborne Crowley there, the author of My Body Keeps Your Secrets. It's out now through Alan and Unwin. You're listening to Triple R. I did just want to mention if that interview did bring up anything for you, uh, do know that you can always call places like 1-800-RESPECT, which are a national sexual assault domestic family violence counselling service. Um, You can call them. You can also chat online. There's also um, Beyond Blue for any unpleasant feelings um, that come up for you. Um, There's always support services that operate around the clock. You are listening to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 